0: John 11, verse 45 to 54 is our text today. John 11, 45 through 54. This is the word of Almighty God. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus therefore walked openly. Sorry, Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples. Pray with me now, friends. Lord, I would ask you to provide your blessing on your holy word. Your word tells us, Lord, that if we who are evil know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more will our heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? God, I am asking for your Holy Spirit to be present, active, moving, invigorating our study of your word, convicting and accomplishing your will. Please, God, do what only you can do. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. So a few weeks ago... I shared on my little Instagram feed. You guys know I'm way into doing the Instagram because I take great pictures. I shared on my Instagram feed a snippet of one of the messages from Michael Reeves at the Ligonier National Conference. I found the words he was sharing quite encouraging to my soul. It's just so sweet. And most people agreed with me that this was encouraging but there's always one. I have no idea who the one person is. This is, you know, someone who doesn't know us and we don't know them. But he was very upset about what I shared because, well, his comment declared that it's evil for us to declare that we know anything about God. He said that the only way for a person to be a truly good person would be for that person to declare that we don't know anything about God because doubt is the only truly right and humble position. Obviously, since our commenter told us he doesn't know anything about God, he was declaring himself to be good and me to be bad for sharing something that purported to teach something about God. Now, As an aside, because this is who I am, that's a bad argument. For someone to say that doubt is the only right position is logically for that person to declare that certainty is false. However, to declare certainty to be false is a declaration of certainty. So his argument collapses on itself by contradicting itself. But the angry commenter, he wasn't really trying to get into a big logical philosophical debate with me. He was trying to tell me and anybody who would listen that he doesn't like what we assume to be true about God the very things that many of us who watched that little video snippet found to be sweet and encouraging, this man found ugly and terrible. And my heart actually breaks for this person, not because his argument's bad, but because he really doesn't know the truth about the God presented to us in the Bible. In many instances, Christians, we're going to share truth you and I know to be good, beautiful truth, but the world around us is going to receive that truth as ugly, as hateful. The question is, what should we do? Well, we should keep believing it, we should keep sharing it, we should keep trusting that God is in control. We should keep knowing that our God is good, so much better than the false pictures that the world makes up. And we should trust that God will sovereignly draw people to himself out of his love for his glory. Today, as we pick up our study of the life of Jesus in the gospel according to John, we'll see the aftermath of something beautiful. Jesus just raised Lazarus from the dead. Some will love it. Some, believe it or not, will hate it. Let's take a look. Let's find five points and perhaps these will help us to be ready when people respond harshly to what's beautiful. Point number one. i tell you what. I won't give this one to you. I'll read the scripture and you can help me, Okay. Look at verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. Anybody want to help me come up with a sermon point for this one? (laughs) Okay, if you say so. Point one, believe in Jesus. You can see where I get it from, can't you? If you remember the scene... We're picking up the story at an amazing moment. Lazarus, the brother of, uh, of Martha and Mary, had died and his dead body had been in the tomb for four days. And Jesus did not come to Bethany in time to heal him before he died. And that was on purpose. The Savior intended to display his own glory and to help the people to believe. And when Jesus arrived... He asked to be taken to the grave, and there Jesus prayed and shouted for Lazarus to come out of that tomb. Lazarus, here, outside! And Lazarus came out. He was alive, he was well, he was resurrected. Jesus had raised the dead. He had done the impossible. Jesus had shown us all that just as God is master over even the grave, Jesus, God the Son, is master over even the grave. How do we react to this? How should we respond? We see one response right here. Many people believed. Do not miss that many who believe were, quote, the Jews who had come to comfort Martha and Mary. When John speaks of a group in his writing here as, quote, the Jews, he's typically talking about people who were hostile to Jesus at that time. Thus, in this moment, people who had initially been opponents of Jesus became believers. These folks had seen something so amazing, so undeniable, so loving, so kind, they couldn't help but turn from unbelief to faith. John 20, verses 30 and 31, John says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John says, wants people to believe i want you to hear that more personally god moved john to write this book because he wants you to believe why in believing you find eternal life the truly good news is that though all of us naturally fall short of God's standard of perfection, God loves us. God God proved his love for us by sending his son. Not just to show us who he is, not just to show us what he's like. God proved his love for us because he sent his son to die and then rise from the grave to rescue us from the punishment we deserve for our wrongs. And the only way we can receive that love and forgiveness is by coming to Jesus in faith, believing. Like the crowd who was amazed and believed, you must believe in Jesus. Believe that you need God's forgiveness. Believe that God loved you enough to send his son to die for you. Believe that Jesus rose from the grave. Believe that God is good, that he's worthy of your very life. Believe in Jesus and be saved. I believe this call to be saved by God's grace through faith is good news. Do you guys believe that's good? Yeah. It's beautiful. But not everybody Will. The people who believe will be those who have been changed by God. The natural bent of a human heart is to oppose the Lord. We're going to see that in our second point. Point number two, expect some to be hostile. Expect some to be hostile. Look at 46 through 50. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. To me, I assume to Martha and Mary, Jesus raising Lazarus was a good, beautiful thing. Many in the crowd saw it that way too. But there were others. John tells us that some people in the crowd immediately ran off to tell the religious leadership what had happened the way the context shakes out, they told the leaders clearly in a negative way, a tattling way, a way intended to get Jesus into trouble. Have you guys ever had someone who gives the news to somebody else in a way that might be intended to get you in trouble? Children. You all know what this is like. These guys tried to tell on Jesus for raising the dead and get him in trouble for it. Like there was a rule against it. Well the Pharisees got together with the leading religious council of the day. It was called the Sanhedrin. It was a group of 70 religious teachers along with the high priest. It was made up probably of Pharisees and Sadducees so they didn't always get along. And this group They've been for a while now concerned about the growing popularity of Jesus over his three-year ministry. Now they're ready to take action. In verse 47, notice what the council says. They're trying to figure out what to do. They cannot argue with the fact that Jesus is doing the miraculous. He has performed signs that testify to his identity as the Christ, as God in the flesh. But stop here and think, will you? The religious leaders have admitted Jesus has truly done things only God can do. They know that these are signs testifying to his glory. And they ask, what should we do? Don't you guys think the answer to that question should be obvious? What should they do? In Jesus. They should believe in Jesus. If you see Jesus living as God in the flesh, doing stuff only God can do, saying things only God can say and perfectly full of goodness and holiness and grace, don't you think believing in Jesus is the right choice? They should come to Jesus. They should surrender to Jesus. They should follow Jesus. They should be saved by Jesus. Verse 48 though, helps us to see that the objections that this group has are not related to truth. Instead, their objections are related to their position, to their comfort. The council members fear that everybody's going to believe in Jesus. But if everybody believes in Jesus, and if everybody starts following Jesus, then maybe the council members won't have anybody who wants to follow them. They might lose their popularity. They might lose their prestige. They might lose their power. The Sanhedrin members wonder about the possibility that the Romans might hear about such a popular leader rising up. And they speculate that maybe Jesus might cause the Romans to come into Judea and take away our place and our nation. When they talk about taking away their place the group saying they're afraid that the Romans will come in and destroy the temple. When they talk about taking away their nation, they're afraid that the Romans will take from them the rights of the Jews to be a nation on their own under the empire. So the council fears the loss of personal prestige, personal rights, political power. Understand, please, this objection is not an objection to truth. The fear here is related to what the council believes the truth might cause. If the truth isn't what they want it to be, or if the truth might cause something they do not want to experience to take place, the council is going to reject the truth and look for a way to get rid of the truth because they don't like the truth. This is not an honest objection to what reality is. It's a rejection of reality for the sake of preference, comfort, or perceived safety. This is not intellectually honest. You know, it's like breaking a mirror because you don't like what you see in the mirror. Breaking that mirror does not change reality. It just makes a mess. And friends, denying reality because you don't like reality is not helpful. Parents, how many of you have had a kid who hid by putting their head in a cabinet? You can't see me, so I'm not here. It's kind of like what they're doing. But usually, it's a toddler, and there's a big old baby rear end sticking right out of that cabinet that everybody knows is there. Enter Caiaphas, the Jewish high priest from A.D. 18 through 36. Caiaphas was the son-in-law to a man named Annas. Annas had been high priest from 7 to 14. From the years 14 to 18, three of Annas' sons were, Were high priest, they they came in, they got kicked out, they came in, they got kicked out, they came in, they got kicked out. And then Caiaphas gets hold of the position as high priest, and he holds on to it for 18 years. He was a slick political operator. And Caiaphas is the man who was the high priest the year of Jesus' crucifixion. Caiaphas, ever brash, tells the council they know nothing. Why in the world would you silly people be having a debate about what to do with Jesus? How thick must you be? Sadly, Caiaphas is not going to offer us a solution that sticks with the word of God. And he's not going to offer a solution that matches the character of Jesus. He's not going to offer a response that fits the truth shown by the miracles Jesus has performed. Think about this for a second. Never once has Jesus threatened a political uprising. In fact, Jesus once intentionally walked away from a crowd that wanted to make him king by force in John 6.15. What Caiaphas is going to suggest, though, is selfish and it's evil. Caiaphas says, It's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. In a moment, we're going to look at those words for a deep meaning that Caiaphas doesn't even intend. But first, let's let these words stand as the priest meant them. Caiaphas is suggesting that if Jesus is a problem, kill him. No big deal. We want our people not to have any political change. We want our council not to lose any influence or power. Yeah, I know scripture forbids murder, but sometimes you just got to break the rules. That's what Caiaphas is saying. Sweetheart of a priest, did not he? But here's where we pause to see our second point. Expect some to be hostile. Jesus did a beautiful thing by raising Lazarus from the dead. It was a sign that was undeniable. But the Sanhedrin, led by Caiaphas, hates what they see. They hate the thought of not being the ones in charge, they hate the idea of not having power, they hate the idea of not having comfort. They hate the idea of not keeping their present political status. And they're willing to murder an innocent man to keep things the way they like them. And friends, as you and I tell people about Jesus, some people are going to believe. Those drawn by God will love what they see of Jesus as we tell them about Jesus. But there are other people who will be hostile. They may mock us. They may simply ignore us or belittle us. They may try to have laws passed against us. They may do us violence. What do we do? Well, one thing is expect the hostility. If you're not surprised by it, you can respond in a godly way, right? You ever notice that when you're surprised is when you struggle to respond well? But if you're not surprised, you're ready. Don't think that if people are nasty toward you, that God has somehow failed you. This is how they treated your Lord. Jesus himself warned that they're going to treat you much the same as they treated him. So stand firm. Telling the truth. Loving your Savior. Dealing with the responses as they come. But you might think to yourself that hostility feels like God's not in control. Can I remind you God is in control? We'll see it in our next point. Point number three. Be comforted by God's sovereignty. Be comforted by God's sovereignty. Real quick poll. How many of you in our Sunday school growth class this morning were comforted by God's sovereignty? Yeah. By the way, that's why those of you who didn't make it, you ought to come. We have a good time in the word together. Be comforted by God's sovereignty. John 11. 51, look at this. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. We'll just pause there. John inserts for us a little little interpretation so that we don't miss the irony of what just came out of Caiaphas' mouth. The evil priest intended only to tell the people, well, let's just murder Jesus for pragmatic reasons. Better for one man to die than for all of us to die. Better him than me. But Caiaphas actually said something that is a powerful word from God, and he had no idea he was saying it. John tells us Caiaphas did not say this of his own accord, God moved him to say something that fit God's plan. It was fitting that the man in the role of the high priest might actually utter a true prophetic word about what Jesus would do, yet the man had no clue what God's plan actually was. Now, y'all, this is not the only time in history that God has used the words of people who did not intend to say what they were saying. How many of you remember the account of a man named Balaam in the book of Numbers. Anybody remember Balaam? Balaam was not a friend of God. He was a wicked man, but he had some kind of supernatural gift that could speak accurate words of prophecy. Don't ask me how, it's not my job to know. Balaam was wicked though. We know he was wicked because at the end of his ministry, he taught the king of Moab To lure Israelite men into sin so they would lose the favor of God. Nasty dude. Well, the king of the Moabites wanted Balaam to pronounce a powerful prophetic curse over Israel. Balaam knew God told him not to do it, he wasn't supposed to go. But he whined and wheedled, and things eventually worked out where Balaam went. Here's what's great. Balaam got ready to pronounce a curse over Israel. I don't know what it was. May all your toenails grow green. I, I don't know what he was going to say. It was going to be bad, though. But when Balaam tried to pronounce a curse over Israel, God wouldn't let him. Instead, Balaam repeatedly pronounces God's blessing over Israel and kept predicting this nation is going to whoop. Moab like crazy. They're going to make it into the promised land and set it up and no one's going to stop them. The king didn't like it, by the way. But it was this wicked man, this wicked Balaam, who spoke a word of prophecy about the coming Messiah. And his prophecy about the coming Messiah is probably the prophecy that the wise men in Babylon knew about which led them to come and find the young Jesus. Remember the gold, frankincense, and myrrh and all that stuff? Numbers 24, verse 17. One of the things God had Balaam say that he did not want to say was this. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. And in case you doubt whether God can use the mouth of somebody who does not want to talk about him, God also opened the mouth of Balaam's donkey and allowed it to speak words of truth. So you should know, without question, God can use anybody he wants to speak a word of truth when it fits God's purposes. But in our passage for today, Caiaphas Trying to convince the council to to agree with him and kill Jesus, he speaks in a way that predicts the fact that Jesus would lay down his life as a sacrificial substitute for others. Jesus did not merely die so that the Romans wouldn't attack Israel, Jesus died like a sacrificial lamb. To bring the forgiveness of God to many people. Isaiah 53 verse 4 and 5 say. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. Verse 12 of Isaiah 53 says, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. While Caiaphas was wrong, it was an evil thought to suggest that Jesus should die wrongfully for the nation's political well-being. Caiaphas was right. It was good for Jesus to die one man, the God-man, to save the souls of God's elect. One of the ways that the gospel shows us the goodness and the beauty of God is in the fact that Jesus is God who dies for our sins. God could not overlook our sin. Just ignore it. Sweep it under the rug. Do not believe any gospel that acts like God would ever ignore any sin. That's not biblical. It'd be evil of God just to let sin go. Sin has to be justly punished. But neither would it be right for God to put forth just another person, just some other dude out there, some other man to be my substitute. It's not fair. Shifting the blame of my guilt to just any other person would be unjust. But God, the offended party in this relationship, chose to personally bear the burden for my guilt. God the Son, the very one I've most sinned against, the very one who most has the right to destroy me, chose to come and stand in my stead. Only God could rightly bear the penalty for my sin. And the good news is that Jesus, who is God in the flesh, has done so. One man died to ransom the many. This is a great, loving, kind, merciful, perfectly just God. Praise him. Love him. He's worthy. But rolling around behind the stunning statement from Caiaphas is John's explanation that reminds us God was using the mouth of a nasty, sinful man to say something glorious and true. How could God do this? God can do it because God's sovereign. God's in control. God is never surprised by anything anybody ever says or ever does. Or the old statement I was recently reminded of. Has it ever occurred to you that nothing ever occurs to God? Even the wicked are instruments in God's hands that he can and will use to accomplish his perfect plans. You and I know bad things happen. Bad men and women rise to positions of power. Bad people do bad things to others. But don't let yourself think even for a moment that God is not working all things, even the darkest things, for the good of his true children. God works sickness, sorrow, even death for the final good of his own. Y'all remember when Joseph's brothers in Genesis 50 stood before him and they pleaded for mercy because they were afraid Joseph might kill him after his dad died, Right? They had sold Joseph off as a slave. They lied to their father about him. They faked his death. But what did Joseph have to say to the men who had tried to ruin his life and who put him through years of torment? What did Joseph say? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You meant it for evil. Caiaphas meant his words for evil. But God meant something completely other. God would use Joseph's hardship for good. God would use Caiaphas's words and his evil plan for good. Joseph's sorrows saved many physical lives. Jesus' death will bring about the salvation of many souls. So be comforted by God's sovereignty. When things seem rough in this world, and man, they do, don't they? Don't lose hope. Don't lose sight of God's mighty power. Don't forget God's goodness. Remember that God is still on his throne let me give you one more way to think about God's goodness. Point number four be grateful for God's global plan. Be grateful for God's global plan. I want to read 51 again with 52. He did not say this on his own accord, of his own accord, but being the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. The impact of verse 52 hits strongest when we allow our minds to return to the cultural context of Jesus' day. Back in AD 30 or so, the people of Judea believed there's one people of God. Who did the people of Judea think the people of God were? the people of Judea. It's convenient for them, right? Only the Jews. Only the physical descendants of Abraham. And they believed that anybody who wanted to become a follower of God first had to become part of the physical nation of the Jews. Outsiders. Gentiles. That's like y'all. People not born of Abraham's physical bloodline they were not likely to have any chance at all to experience the grace of God. Or if they were to experience the grace of God, it would only come from renouncing their nationality, renouncing their culture, and becoming a sort of second-class citizen in Israel. The people in Israel, by Jesus' day, had utterly misunderstood what God's global plan was. See, from the beginning, God has always planned he's going to spread his grace to all people groups, all nations, all ethnicities, all over the world. God told Abraham, the father of the nation, that he would have an offspring, one particular person who would be his offspring, who would bring the blessing of God to all nations. God promised in Isaiah He'd make for himself worshipers from Egypt and from Assyria, which were nations that were enemy nations of Israel. But God didn't say this was going to happen because Israel was going to conquer those lands. God was going to spread his grace to the Gentiles. Listen to this crazy verses in Isaiah 19, verses 23 to 25. And try to think like a first century Jew who just knew you were the only people of God. Listen to this. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and Assyria will come into Egypt, and Egypt into Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, A blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. Like I said, to us, this may not sound radical. But to the Jews, especially those of the first century, this is transformative. God's plan is not to make people become citizens of physical national Israel in order to experience his grace. Instead, God is building for himself a spiritual nation, an Israel that is simply the Israel of God, made up of those who are saved by grace through faith in Jesus, God's promised one. Jesus is died to gather into one, one people, one spiritual nation called the people of God. The plan of God is beautiful, guys. It tells you and it tells me it doesn't matter what nation you come from. We can be included in the people of God. It doesn't matter whether you're young or old, rich or poor, black, white, brown, in between, it doesn't matter whether you are a man or a woman, whether you're educated, whether you're uneducated, whether you're healthy, whether you're sickly, whether you're strong, whether you're weak. If you rest your hope in the promise of God fulfilled in Jesus, you are included in the true Israel, the new people of God, the elect saved by grace in Jesus. So what's the response to that beautiful plan of God to build for himself a people? Point number five. Believe before it's too late. Believe before it's too late. 53 and 54. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples. Because the Jews were plotting to kill Jesus, he withdrew from Jerusalem a dozen or so miles. He wasn't so far away he couldn't get to the city if he wanted to, but he was far enough away that the Jews couldn't find him easily. And in the fact that Jesus withdrew from the city, there's a tragic thought and there's an urgent call. The tragic thought is that the Jews, the men who were rejecting Jesus, had finally come to a point where they no longer saw Jesus, heard his teaching, witnessed his miracles, and received the call to believe in him. Their opportunity for faith was closing. And here's the urgent call. Jesus commands us to believe in him. All of us, if you're a human being with breath in your lungs, the command is believe in Jesus for life. He has shown us evidence of his identity by performing wonderful miracle after wonderful miracle. He commands us to believe. Believe now. Believe today. Don't wait for a more convenient time. Don't treasure your current life more than Jesus. Don't put your own comfort in the here and now above the need that all of us have to be forgiven by God. Accept Jesus as your substitute. Ask God to save your soul because of who Jesus is and what he's done. Turn your life over to Jesus and do it before it's too late. Because Jesus, he stopped walking among the Jews. They missed out on who he is. Jesus tells you, believe today. Because if you wait, there's no guarantee you get another chance. In 2 Corinthians 6, 2, the Bible says, For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I've helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. What will happen if you believe? If you believe, you'll be saved. You'll be made new. Most importantly, you'll have Jesus as your Savior, your Lord, your loving God, your great treasure. Some people will see this as beautiful. Beautiful. Some will hate it and they will come against you because they don't know the Lord. If you believe, you'll be a part of God's global family. And through all that you experience, God will be sovereign, in control, shaping your life and bringing you home to him in glory. Let's pray. Lord, I know you call us to believe. I know you call us to surrender. I know you've proved who you are. I pray, God, that those who have heard your word today will come while there's time. I pray that they will enter while there's room. I pray that they will love you, rest in you, and live a life of deep gratitude and worship, and joy because of what you've done. It's in Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.